we trust police officers to be competent, to be honest, to be those who are brave. We trust medical doctors to be skilled and to speak honestly to us whenever we have to consult with them about our physical needs. Spouses trust one another to keep their vows. You really can't live in this world without trust. And yet, trust is fragile. And so it can be easily broken. And sometimes when it is broken, it can be a very painful experience. Locks do fail, after all. Police do give in to abuse of their authority. Doctors make mistakes. And parents forget and sometimes are neglectful. And spouses can grow cold toward each other and even lie to one another. And these realities can make it hard to trust. When trust is broken, it hurts. And sometimes it damages in lasting ways. And when that happens, we find it hard to trust again. You've heard that old adage, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. In other words, I trust you. And if you violate that trust, okay, that's your fault. But it's my fault if I ever trust you again. No matter how well constructed they might be, the best of machines fail at times and let you down. And the same thing is true of people, no matter how virtuous and well-intentioned they might be. Only God always does what he says he's going to do. Only God is completely, perfectly, thoroughly trustworthy. And that is because God's word never fails. That's the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. The passage to which we return this morning in our ongoing study through this letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Our text, as we began it last week, Romans 9, 6 through 13, and we continue this morning, shows us that God is worthy of trust because His Word never fails. So if you've not already done so, take a copy of Scripture and open to Romans 9, 6 through 13. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll find this passage on page 945. And I encourage you to get a copy of the Scripture in front of you so that you can follow the words as I read them aloud, and then we're just going to work our way through the last part of this section as we consider what it means to have a God whose word never fails. So follow in your copy of God's word from Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau 
I hated. The Word of God did not fail for Israel. That's what Paul is arguing in this paragraph. He's addressing a question that would have inevitably arisen because of what he's already written in this letter. Back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he laid out the thesis of the letter, he says that the gospel of God, this gospel that saves, is a gospel that brings salvation for the Jew first and also then for Gentiles. And in various places of this letter, Paul has expressed the benefits that God has given to the Jewish nation, to the Israelites. God chose them to be his old covenant people when he first chose Abraham and made great promises to Abraham. Yet despite many of those benefits, all of those benefits, not many Jews in Paul's day believed the gospel. Not many of them were saved. So not many Jews in Paul's day knew the true God. Well, how can that be the case and the gospel be for the Jew first? If the gospel's for the Jew first, why do so many of them reject it? How do you explain it? Did God's promises in the Old Testament made to Israel, did those promises fail? Paul emphatically says in verse 6, no, God's word did not fail. And that's his thesis for this section of the book for the rest of chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11. God's word did not fail. Specifically, it did not fail the Israelites. He begins to explain how we know this is true by showing us first the true nature of of God's promise to bless Abraham, to make Abraham a great nation. We know the word of God has not failed Israel because first, God's promise was never intended for every member of ethnic Israel. That's what we looked at last week in verses 6 through 9. I pointed out in those verses that Paul argues first that not all Israel is true Israel. That's the last part of verse 6. And then if you look at verse 7, the second point from last Sunday is that not all children that come from Abraham are true offspring or true children of Abraham. That's verse 7. And then verse 8, it is the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh that belong to God. And so with this understanding that Paul's giving to us, we read back the Old Testament and we say, oh, that's what God was doing. And we recognize that he always had a remnant people that were going to be the recipients of his promise. So the first way that we can see how the word of God did not fail for Israel is by recognizing that his promise was never intended for all ethnic Israel. Today, we're going to look at the second point that Paul makes to prove his case. And this is found in the latter part of the verses that we read, verses 10 through 13. And this second point can be stated like this, that God fulfills his promise through sovereign election. He fulfills his promise through sovereign election. From Isaac and Ishmael, Paul now turns in these verses to Jacob and Esau in order to show His word did not fail Israel. Notice verse 10, how it starts. And not only so. In other words, Paul is saying, to continue this line of reasoning, 
I want to buttress my point even further. It's a continuation of the same argument. He's continuing to build his case. Isaac was the son of Abraham. Jacob and Esau were the sons of Isaac. And what Paul is teaching us in these verses is that God sovereignly chose Jacob, not Esau. He sovereignly chose Jacob, not Esau. Now, I say this because of the explanation that Paul gives in the middle of verse 11. Look at that. He says that God did this in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Now, we're going to come back to that phrase in just a few moments. But for now, I just want to call your attention to the fact that Paul in this passage is dealing with the doctrine of election. He's talking about God choosing Jacob and not choosing Esau. And that's what election means. It means to select. It means God's choice of specific people to be saved. Now, this is further confirmed in the word that God spoke to Rebekah as it's recorded in verse 12. God told her the older will serve the younger. Now, this went against all of the customs of ancient Near Eastern religions and uh, cultures. It certainly went against the norm in the teaching of the Israelites, where the law was that the firstborn son would be the one who inherited the benefits and the blessings from his father. But God chose Jacob, the secondborn, not Esau. And God did this, Paul says, first, despite their similarities. Jacob and Esau had the same father and the same mother, unlike Ishmael and Isaac. They had the same father, but they had different mothers. Further, these boys were twins. They were conceived at the same time. They grew together in their mother's wombs and were born within minutes of each other. God did this despite their similarities, but he also did it without respect to their works. Again, look at verse 11. Not because of works. Well, of course not. When God made this determination, neither one of them had done any works. They'd done nothing either good or bad, the text says. Well, neither one of them had been born. They had not opportunity to do anything good or bad. Well, if he made this decision without regard to any consideration in these two boys, then what was the decision based on? He made the decision to choose one, not the other, Jacob, not Esau, solely on his own personal character. He made the decision with respect to himself. You see it in verse 11? He did it because of him who calls. That's God. He did it because of himself. There cannot be any real debate that Paul is teaching here that God sovereignly chose Jacob, not Esau. The language is crystal clear. But this idea that God would make such distinctions between people, it's highly offensive in our day. Largely because we live in such an egalitarian age. That is, we have been taught 
That everybody deserves the same things. That no one should have more or less than anyone else. And if in any way that's not the case, then what do you hear? That's not fair. That's not fair. This is why we're hearing so much in our day about equity regarding every area of life. And when we hear about it, equity is not referring merely to equal opportunity, but to equal outcomes. And disparity in outcome today is automatically judged to be because of prejudice or because of discrimination or oppression or immorality or some other kind of wickedness. And make no mistake, those things do exist. And there are real people who do suffer because of them. However, not every disparity of outcome is due to such things. If we would simply stop and think about nature, we could see this immediately. Valleys are not mountains. Clouds are not the same as grass. Lizards aren't lions. Bears aren't bobcats. Elephants aren't eels. Ferrets aren't fish. God doesn't make everything exactly the same. And that's not just true in nature. That's true within the human race. That's true of us here in this room. Men are not women. Children are not adults. Some people are tall. Some people are short. Some are physically strong. Some are weak. Some are able-bodied, some are disabled, some are born with greater intelligence than others, and some are born with greater advantages than others. I mean, why are you in Florida where there's freedom and relative prosperity rather than in Cuba under an oppressive regime that would crush your life out where there's scarcity of even the basic necessities of life. Why are you alive today when there are antibiotics available to you rather than 200 years ago when bacterial meningitis killed 90% of the children who contracted it? You see, when God calls us to pursue justice in this world, we must be clear that He is not calling us to some kind of utopian vision that eliminates all distinctions between people. Rather, He is calling us to live with humility, honesty, to live righteously with love in all of our dealings with each other. If we were more accurately attuned to these realities in God's world, then the doctrine of election would not be so immediately offensive to us. Our text says that God sovereignly chose Jacob, not Esau. And he did so despite similarities between them. They were twins. He did so without any regard or respect to their works because they hadn't done anything good or bad. And he did so only with respect to himself. He chose Jacob before Jacob was born. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this doctrine of election. A wonderful preacher in London In the 19th century, he wrote this. I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure that he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. 
And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. God chose Jacob, not Esau. But not only that, Paul goes on to say in verse 13 that God sovereignly loved Jacob and hated Esau. Now, when Paul makes this statement, he's quoting from the prophet Malachi. He says, as it is written, he's quoting Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Spurgeon calls this a terrible text. By that, he doesn't mean immoral. He doesn't mean it's wrong. He just means that it is assaulting. It, it, it is bracing. It's stark. It forces us to face realities about ourselves and about God that our sinful natures would rather not face. But within this sentence, there is glorious truth that humbles man and exalts God. And we dare not miss it. So before we look at what Paul means by this sentence, we need to ask two clarifying questions. Because some have tried to gloss over the starkness of this sentence and suggest that it means something less than it does. Some have said that what Paul means here is that God simply loved Esau less. Well, is that what Paul is arguing here? Perhaps there's comparative usages of this type of language elsewhere that has some of that meaning. But that's not likely what he means here. The word that he employs is a word that means to despise, to have hostility for, to reject. Well, others have suggested but Paul's not talking about Jacob and Esau as individuals. He's talking about nations. And they think that by seeing it that way, they lessen the starkness and the abrasiveness of this language. Does Paul have in mind two nations rather than two brothers? Well, Malachi in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where Paul quotes for this verse, was clearly speaking of the two nations that came from Jacob and Esau. But Paul, as we have just read in this context, is clearly talking about the two boys themselves because he speaks of them and does so by name. These were twins that were born to their mother, Rebekah. Now, they certainly became nations, Israel from Jacob, Edom from Esau. But even if Paul were speaking only of the later nations rather than the two twin boys, it doesn't really lessen the stark nature of what he says. It's only an illusion. Because what are nations comprised of? But people, individuals. Paul here is arguing that the older twin Esau was not going to be chosen because he was not savingly loved in a covenantal relationship the way that God covenantally pledged himself to his brother Jacob. The older twin, we read in the Old Testament, did indeed serve his younger brother. You remember when Don read earlier and Esau came in from the field and he was hungry. He sold his birthright to his younger brother for a bowl of stew. And in a sense, became his servant. Well, what does this verse mean then? 
What does it mean when God says, Jacob, I loved? It means that he freely loved Jacob. He set his favor upon Jacob before Jacob was ever born. He chose Jacob over his brother to be the one through whom God would keep his promise. Isaac and Ishmael were both sons of Abraham, but only Isaac was chosen to be the one through whom God's promise of salvation would be preserved. And now a generation later, Jacob and Esau are twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah, yet only Jacob is favored by God to receive the promise. And it is through this lineage that Jesus Christ was ultimately born. When you read the story of Jacob from Genesis chapters 25 through chapter 49, you cannot help but see the many ways that God's favor was obviously at work in Jacob's life. He favors him with the blessing of his father Isaac, the blessing that would normally go to the firstborn in chapter 27. He favors him with a dream of a ladder from heaven, from God in heaven to earth, with angels ascending and descending on it, giving us a a premonition, a, a foreshadowing of God's communion with people on earth through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jacob's father-in-law Laban deceived him into working an extra seven years for his wife, Rachel. God blessed Jacob and caused his flocks to prosper. The angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob in chapter 32 of Genesis. And Jacob laid hold of him and wouldn't let him go until the Lord blessed him. Jacob fathered 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. And God saved his people through a miraculous way of dealing with Joseph, one of those 12 sons, by sending him in slavery into Egypt ahead of his brothers and father and their family so that when famine came, God could preserve his people by leading them into Egypt where there was plenty. All of these blessings came to Jacob Not because of his works. Not because he was a good guy. They came to Jacob because of God's grace. In fact, if you go back and read those sections in Genesis that talk about Jacob, you could make a pretty good case that he was a scoundrel. He was a deceiver. He lied. He feared people. He forgot God. He lived a very flawed life. Time after time, he didn't trust the God who saved him. But God's love for Jacob was not based on anything in Jacob. It was based upon God. It was free. It was grounded in grace, not grounded in anything in Jacob. So God freely loved Jacob. But God also justly hated Jacob. Esau. I say justly because Esau, like every one of us in this room, was a sinner against God. He opposed God. He opposed the ways of God. He disdained his birthright. He plotted to kill his brother. When Christians read verse 13 of our text, they often admit to struggling with this text. I mean, how can it be? How can God say this? 
Well, I understand that conundrum. Because when you come to this text and you look at it, you see this is a problem. The the problem, however, is not that God hated Esau. That I understand. The problem is how could God love Jacob? What kind of God is this? Who loves rebels against himself? What kind of God is this? Who because of his grace freely sets his love on people who deserve the opposite. This is what makes grace amazing. Scripture is so clear about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people that when we see it and we believe it, we're not shocked by passages like this in Psalm 5 that says God hates all evildoers or verses like James 4, 6 that God opposes the proud. You understand that Because all of us are by nature spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. And that by nature we live according to that sin in rebellion against God. Therefore, by nature, we are children of God's wrath. If you understand sin, you understand God's holiness, then you don't balk at the teaching that God's wrath hangs over sinners. And whenever... The way of grace and salvation is made known to you that God loves sinners and He gave up His own Son for sinners and He redeems sinners who trust in His Son. That causes grace to be amazing. It boggles the mind. Paul's been making the case throughout the book of Romans, early in those chapters of Romans, about the universality and the wickedness of sin He does this in chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. And he announced it in that 18th verse of the first chapter that the wrath of God is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, what, what God says about his attitude toward Jacob, his hatred of Jacob, it's what every one of us deserve. If we got what we had coming to us, we would face nothing but everlasting wrath from the God against whom we have rebelled. That's simple justice. What's amazing is not that God hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob. And brothers and sisters, that's true for you and me too. If you're in Christ, it's because God loved you. And he loved you not because of anything in you. He loved us because he's a God of grace. The love that God had for Jacob and the love that he has for all of his people throughout history, for all eternity, is love that is not based upon anything in the creature. It is love that arises from and finds its expression fully within God himself. It's sovereign love. It's sovereign grace. This grace comes through Jesus, who was born in the lineage of Jacob. God's promise, his word was kept through the coming of Jesus into the world. This was always his plan. And he fulfilled his plan. He executed it perfectly by sending his own son into the world as a real man God provides salvation for all who are in Him. All who trust Christ as Lord. And it's only in Christ that you can ever experience the sovereign grace and love of God. 
It's only by turning from your sin, confessing that you've rebelled against God, and submitting yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord that you will ever experience God's love. So if you've never trusted Christ before, trust Him now. Come to Him now. Confess your sin now. Acknowledge what the Bible says is true about you now. And look to this God who is full of grace and mercy for sinners. God sovereignly chose Jacob, not Esau. He sovereignly, freely loved Jacob and hated Esau. At the end of verse 11, we read that God did this so that his purpose of election might stand. Look at that phrase again. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. God's purpose stands. That's what that word means when we read might continue. It means to stay, to remain, to abide. It's the very opposite of that word in verse 6, failed. The word did not fail. Exactly opposite is true. It remains. God's purpose stands firm. It is an electing purpose. The, the nature of God's purpose is rooted in his sovereign choice. That's what we mean. That's what Paul means by this, this purpose according to election. It's an electing purpose. He's always been working in accordance with his eternal sovereign purpose. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 1.11. That in him, that is in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This electing purpose is again dependent completely on himself. It's not determined by anything outside of himself. He fulfills his purpose not by reacting, but by initiating. And so it depends on him who calls. Who initiates. Now we've heard this language before. We heard it in Romans chapter 8. In and surrounding that blessed promise. That we have in verse 28. Where Paul says. And we know that for those who love God. All things work together for good. For those who are the called. According to his purpose. And then he elaborates. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. See, God's been working for history and eternity future from before the very foundations of the world. He chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, then Jacob's son, Judah, and through the lineage of Judah down to the birth of Jesus Christ. And he did this to bring about his eternal purpose for his creation. Specifically, he worked in this way to save a people for himself, a people comprised exclusively of sinners who have been redeemed by the life and death of Jesus Christ. People who have been reconciled to God by the life, death, and resurrection of God's own Son. He did this to save people just like you and me who confess our sins and trust Christ. The fact that God has an eternal, sovereignly designed, and enacted purpose for His world 
and that that purpose includes sovereignly loving and choosing particular people to be saved through Jesus, in no way removes responsibility from any of us. I confess that this truth of God's sovereignty and salvation is above reason. I have no illusions that I've explained it so clearly that everyone says, oh, of course, that's easy. It's not easy. But it's not irrational. It is not contrary to reason. It's supra-rational. It's above reason. And it's been revealed to us. And as people of the book, we listen to what the book says. And when the scripture tells us that this is what God does, this is how he acts in history from eternity to eternity, then we submit and we say, okay, Lord, this is true. Because we know that the God who reveals himself and these truths to us is the God whose world it is. This is the way he's made the world. You might be thinking, well, how can we genuinely be responsible? How can there be any freedom if God is sovereign in this way? Well, that's the world we have. That's the way God made it. And your freedom is no less diminished by God's sovereignty than his sovereignty is by your freedom. This is what the text tells us about how God's world works. He is working out his eternal purpose exactly according to plan. And all that he has previously promised to do, he is doing and he will do. His word does not fail because his word cannot fail. As the one who sees the end from the beginning, he is a purpose to accomplish everything, all his holy will for both time and eternity. And his holy will is to save both Jews and Gentiles. Indeed, anyone and everyone who trusts Jesus Christ as Lord. That's his purpose. So do you want to be saved? Well, you will be saved if you turn from your sin, confess your sins against God and trust Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, you might ask, but what if God hasn't elected me? Well, if you want to be saved and you turn from your sin and trust Jesus, you can be sure he has elected you. You can be confident that it is God's work in you that has made you desire that. But if you're satisfied to go on living in your rebellion against your creator, what difference does it make to you whether you're elected or not? You're getting exactly what you want. If you want to continue in your sin and not bow to Christ Jesus as Lord, you have no complaint to make against God in saying that he is too sovereign or that you had no choice. Responsibility is yours. The grace you need desperately is his. And if you hear his gracious call to trust Jesus and refuse, then the fault is all your own. But if you heed his call, you trust Christ it will be completely because of his grace. So trust Jesus today. And he will save you as he trusts him. He delights to show mercy to people like you and me. Brothers and sisters, as we sit here in worship today, we should afresh see the wonders of God's grace. You love him because he first loved you. You chose him because he first chose you. Your salvation 
is all because of sovereign grace. And whenever on that last day we enter into the presence of our Lord, none of us will go into His presence thinking, I'm so glad I was smart enough. I'm so glad I was good enough. I'm so glad I. There will be none of that. We'll all be singing grace, grace, marvelous grace, amazing grace that loved the likes of me. All praise goes to God. He's loved us, done everything necessary to guarantee that his purpose will be fulfilled in us. His word will never fail. It didn't fail the Israelites. It will not fail you. So trust him and live confidently in his world, knowing that he has given you incredible promises. And venture on him. Risk your life for his sake as you seek to live according to the scripture. And be sure of this, come what consequences there might be, that your good God will not let one of his promises for you fall to the ground. We can be people full of faith. His purpose will be fulfilled. He will guide you. He will provide for you. He will do it to the very end because he alone is God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We bow. We bow to you. We, we can't do anything else because you're God. We don't want to do anything else because you're God. And the fact that we could even be here this morning and consider this revealed truth, consider these statements that are revealing to us your greatness, your majesty, your sovereignty, your grace. It's a testimony to how kind and loving you are. And I pray that you would stir us up, that we would renounce sin, that we would renounce foolishness, and that we would give ourselves heart and soul to you, our great God, by trusting the Lord Jesus, following Jesus, delighting ourselves in Jesus. Have mercy on those here with us today that are hardened in their thinking against you. Show them Christ. Pour out your grace on them as you've done for so many of us. And magnify the kind of God you are who delights in saving sinners. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.